Blog Talk Radio.
agenda tonight will include the first segment, what's going on in the neck of your woods and the, and the community, or what's going on in your work and the community, followed by discussion of the theme, protecting, projecting, and use of power. So let's get started with our power, like always, by bringing you and introducing you to our first analyst and panelist, Brother Anthony. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony. We're now bringing Brother Brother Haki. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, peace, Brother Africa. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamafi Mshoki. Currently, I'm with African Awareness, and I'm all about institution buildings. You know, Brother Africa. You know, a couple of weeks ago, while you were in, in hiatus, uh, hiatus, uh, we had an opportunity to discuss the uh, implications of the conscious mind versus the unconscious mind. And when we talk about the unconscious mind, one of the reasons why propaganda is so so powerful is able to produce in people's minds without them, actually, without them necessarily understanding what's going on, uh, certain ideas and certain concepts. And so, therefore, we try to um, try to empower people. Sometimes it's difficult, sometimes because of the unconscious function of the human mind. But in any event, I read an article uh, by a couple of academics. Uh, one, Sidney Dupree. Organizational Behavioralist uh, out of Yale University, and Susan Fisk out of Princeton University. They looked at 74 liberal speeches over the last 75 years, and they wanted to know what are the implications of those speeches. Now, one thing they found that was very interesting, when it comes to liberal speeches, when it came to, to white folks, uh, words related to competence were a big part in terms of those, what they discovered, uh, things like ability, status, and so forth, were, were a constant theme in terms of discussions with white people. But when it came to African people, uh, words like warmth, feminist, supportive, uh, compassion continued to pop up. In other words, the perception is that on an unconscious level that these white liberals see African people as perpetual children. And so therefore it has peculiar ramifications when we talk about policy or even in terms of how they see African people. So given this reality, uh, Clearly, if you think in context of you know children in school, and you think about teachers who are teaching these these children, uh, clearly if they have this kind of bias toward African people, then clearly it has negative ramifications for the potential for our children to learn, and particularly has implications for African people in higher education. So clearly, we have to have institutions in terms of you know not only understanding the nature of this bias, but actually being in a position to empower our children to be in a position you know when they see it to actually be able to confront it. So the institutions are extremely important in terms of empowering the people, and I encourage people to get involved in terms of being an institution in the African community. And, Brother Africa, I want to thank you for having me. Yeah, Brother Hacker, your point reminds me of the point that Secretary uh, left for us to learn as a legacy, uh, understanding that the beginning of power begins with conception. How people can see, can see and conceptualize things uh, is really important. That's one of the first steps. And I don't think our people put much place a great a, a great deal of value on the importance of conception. So uh, that's really interesting to, to the issue that you just uh, raised with our listening audience. 
Thank you, Brother Hackey. Next, we're going to Brother Jabari. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, Sprout Jabari, resident researcher. Looking forward to another insightful program. I always appreciate the honor and privilege to take part with my fellow panelists. Peace to our listening audience. Thank you, Brother Jabari and Brother Moses. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to this audience, there's another panelist that you normally will hear who will be Sister Hannah Bynes, and she is out. She is ill. We will hope to wish her a speedy recovery, and we will acknowledge her and hope she get well. So we'd like to say uh, hello to Hannah and to her families, and, you know, we are here for anything we can do to our Sister Hannah Bynes. Okay, panelists, let's get started with this party. Let's deal with a segment of what's going on in your world and the community. Start out with you, Brother Anthony. Okay. Um, oh, well, s- several things. Uh, let's see. Three that come to mind is uh, last Tuesday was the 90th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birth. And I um, and um, um, a lot of organizations and people are commemorating his birth uh, this weekend, uh, culminating uh, tomorrow in a lot of places. And uh, it was a very serious struggle to uh, you know to get his birthday a national holiday, and in the process of doing that. Uh, some of his work, especially his work after the March on Washington, has been suppressed by the educational system and the mainstream media. And as a result, a lot of Africans don't understand the full breadth of his contributions to our struggle. And uh, and uh, he was gravitating towards. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you, you know, socialism and uh, broader unity among the masses. Uh, you know, toward the end of his life, and uh, he was clearly moving in an anti-capitalist uh, direction, which is one of the main reasons why he was assassinated uh, with the complicity of the U.S. government. Uh, the uh, native, uh, the American Indians uh, held a demonstration in Washington uh, last week, uh, and uh, during the course of that that demonstration, they were they were confronted by uh, some European uh, teenagers out of the, out of this Catholic school, uh, you know, based in Kentucky. Uh, in which they taunted this American Indian, Nathan Phillips, uh, who was playing the drum, and uh, they were shouting, uh, they were mocking him and uh, chanting, build the wall. 
And uh, Nathan Phillips pointed out correctly that in, in the thousands of years the American Indian has been on this land, that there, there, there's never been any sort of border wall. And uh, so, uh, you know, it was uh, the tone was very disrespectful, you know, to this elder. And uh, there was uh, there was an African youth killed by the police in uh, Greenville, Maryland, uh, in front of his mother. And um, you know, uh, you know, allegedly he, he, that, that they thought he was trying to kidnap somebody. Turned out he was just walking with a cousin. So those are the things I have on my mind this week. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world, in the community? You know, one of the things, you know, Brother Africa, you know, as we watch this economy continue to deconstruct, uh, one of the things is very, very clear, that the ramification, or at least the potential ramification for so much chaos and destruction is very, very evident. And one of the things that we know about capitalism is that one of the things that we must have in terms of capitalism is, is an infusion of cash, Going through the system because without the infusion of cash, there's no way for capitalism to expand. But what's happening is that increasingly more and more people are, are jobless. In addition to that, those people who are employed are increasingly wages continue to drop. So therefore, clearly the kind of revenues that capitalism needs to subsist simply not there, and the kind of humanity uh, potential for disaster is for, forever uh, pro- um, um, problematic. So I think that uh, one of the things that in terms of living uh, or at least addressing this humanitarian crisis is looming over this capitalist system is a universal basic income. Now, and this is a system in which is the, uh, a lot of European nations, uh, some African nations, uh, some Asian nations are looking at in terms of as a, as a cure for the overall declining you know, economy. Uh, when you think about the fact, when you look at the, the international debt around the world, we're talking about $184 trillion. And in the United States, the national debt is $22 trillion. Now, here's the problem. There's no way conceivably under current uh, economic arrangement that debt ever, can ever be paid back. So all the homelessness, all, I mean, all the unemployment, um, all the uh, tax, high tax rates on working people, all that is not going to do a thing in terms of indenting, put an indent in any kind of, uh, of crisis that capitalism faces. So it seems to me that one of the things we've got to start thinking about in terms of, of if we're going to avoid this humanitarian crisis, then we have to start looking at a universal basic income. Of course, the question becomes how much is how much universal basic income are, are we talking about? Uh, some people have raised between five hundred to a thousand dollars a month. Um, I raised that's simply not enough money. Maybe five hundred to a thousand dollars per week, but certainly on a monthly basis, that simply won't be enough in terms of the kind of stimulus that you need in terms of making sure. The government gets the revenues it needs, and we can uh, avoid this humanitarian crisis that's uh, on the horizon. Uh, but anyway, we need to start thinking about a universal basis income. And so, those people whose position is that uh, participating in the uh, electoral process is a solution to 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 humanity's ills, then one of the things they got to insist on their leadership or the people who run for these positions in office is that this question in terms of basic income has become become prominent. In the kind of discussions, if we avoid major upheavals that are surely coming this way, when we talk about the crisis of uh, capitalism. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Zabari, what's going on in your world and the community? 
Um, recently, on social media, Facebook had a challenge where they were asking people to post a picture of them currently and a picture of them a decade ago. It's been recently announced that all of that was a mechanism as a means for them to improve the algorithm for facial recognition. So yet again, we have to understand that these popular forms of media that they allow us to get easy access to is all part of a bigger game being played where they're trying to make sure they maintain control of us. So here it is. People were thinking they were just having innocent fun, and it was used as a means to improve a key surveillance technique and facial recognition. So we have to be mindful of things like this because it's a continuing trend and not a blip. Thank you, Brother Bobby and Brother Moses. What's going on in your world in the community? Okay, well, on Monday, tomorrow, Monday, January 21st, the 38th Annual Martin Luther King Peace Walk and Parade will begin in in Anacostia, Washington, D.C. Um, that's at 1231 Good Hope Road, Southeast, at the Anacostia Arts Center, We'll gather at 10 a.m. and we'll actually begin the march at 11 a.m. Um, that's the main thing going on right now. Thank you. Okay, so based on what's going on in various people worlds in that community, are there any responses y'all would like to speak to? Some of the things that's been mentioned um, from each other today. Um, Brother Jabari, I would like to say something really interesting. One of the things that you that we had talked about earlier. And as well as Anthony, we're talking about how the presentation of King has been presented. The narrative. How do y'all see how the narrative is playing out today versus historically how it has been played out and what contradictions exist within that narrative? Of Zabari first and Anthony. Well, one of the most glaring contradictions is King's legacy will forever be entrenched with that of, Mark, of Malcolm X. Oftentimes, people try to put them at odds when really they had both had a common goal of what was going to be best for people of African descent. They had just, at one point, they had different means about how to get there, but as we know towards the end, they were beginning to be on the same wavelength. But the problem is with the way that King's birthday is celebrated and presented in terms of mainstream society, did you not talk about the link that he has with people's likes of Malcolm X or other Pan-African leaders in terms of the ideas they took on and embraced and how when you look at his um, later work, he denounced a lot of the kumbaya-type moments you heard in such a thing such as the dream because he realized the dream was a nightmare and a fallacy that could not be achieved with the conditions that were in place. But we do not have those honest discussions. So we get a mythological image of who King was, but we don't look at the complete picture, but we just look at what's going to be most commercially viable. I think I think Jabari raises some good points, and uh, what I would add to that is that um, is that uh, let's see is that um, Martin Luther King had contact with with, with some of the uh, most revolutionary Pan Africanists of his time, uh, including Kwame Nkrumah and uh, Kwame Ture. And uh, that uh, gets very that often gets swept under the rug in terms of portraying King. 
And a lot of these ideas, you know, he articulated, but, you know, came from his work among the masses of the people. And uh, he was very much a part of uh, the African youth that rose up, uh, you know, against, uh, you know, our oppression, you know, during the, the mid-50s into the uh, into the uh, 60s and onward. He was very much a part of that. And uh, he was only uh, he was only about uh, twelve years older than Kwame Ture, and uh, you know, and uh, and that is, um, and at the time of his death, he was moving uh, closer and closer and, and becoming more critical of U.S. Uh, political and economic policy around the world. But you know, but you know, uh, brother Africa. One of the things is interesting. Earlier, I talked about the report uh, that was made in terms of the reception of you know uh, liberals uh, there when he addressed African people. It's very, very interesting. When you look at Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, clearly the conditions that he talked about didn't improve. In fact, they got worse. And so, therefore, it seems to me, just on a on a on a, on a very fundamental level, that when you see things situation deteriorate, then you have to question the strategy that you employ in terms of addressing those problems that you see. And clearly, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King did. He made he, his, 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 his strategies became more complex as the situations that he was confronted with continued to deteriorate. But the mere fact that he con- continued to promote his ideas as though he, there was no intellectual growth, that he simply remained stagnant, speaks values in terms of his perception that African people may be perceived as children. Because and otherwise, it's extremely, extremely patronizing, extremely insulting to say that given all the, all this all this, this chaos uh, that impacted the African community, that the brother wasn't intelligent enough to understand that this kind of systematic oppression of African people could only be addressed in the most rudimentary kind of way. So to, to not give him credit for actually being able to uh, deconstruct to look at the situation and make changes in terms of strategy, in terms of how he thought, uh, speaks values in terms of bias, in terms of uh, Western society, in terms of, you know, um, Africans' ability in terms of think abstractly. So clearly uh, this report has some legitimacy in terms of the potential that people believe that uh, we, we are, we are, our people are most childlike, and so therefore we're incapable of making the extract kinds of thoughts, uh, abstract kinds of um uh, 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 analysis that are needed in terms of moving our people forward. So clearly, this report has some legitimacy. Anyone else would like to say anything in reference to how the history of King and his legacy has been presented or continue to be presented? So clearly, the presentation or, or, or the narrative when we talk about how it's been presented today is in the hands of the enemy and not in the hands of the people. I think, you know, most of the time when you look at the folks who define me, what he did and why he did it, it normally comes from outside sources and not from sources among the people that he represented. And I think that's one of the problems that oppressed people. You don't control our history. You don't tell our narrative. And that's something we got to correct. Now, one of the things but, I find really interesting. Yeah, go ahead, panelists. But, who was going to say but, something? Well, my point. Well, my point, my point, Brother Africa, is that we as a people, he, forget about the propaganda. 
Forget about the disinformation that's perpetrated by those in power. We understand they got an incentive to lie. That's what they do. But the mere fact that when we look at the life, we analyze the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, if we don't come to a, 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 a unilateral understanding that the brother evolved, then that's on us. You see what I'm saying? They can lie as much as they want to lie. But I know just in terms of our mental faculties, our ability to think. And when I look at the, the history of Martin Luther King, they clearly there was the ability to, 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 to think, to respond to the changing conditions and understand that the strategies have to evolve. And that's what he did. And so we should fundamentally understand that. If we do not fundamentally understand it, then there's something fundamentally wrong with us. See, that's, that's a totally different question. That's aside from the fact that these people are going to lie. Of course they have an incentive to paint Dr. Martin King as somehow nonviolent, aloof, or somehow, you know, um, you know, somehow uh, nonviolent across the board. Of course they have they have an incentive to, to project promote him as such. We understand that. But what I'm raising is that we we to the extent that we buy into that line that Martin Luther King in fact, you know, didn't grow intellectually, then if we buy into that line then there's something fundamentally wrong with us. And that's what I'm saying. So I'm uh, just aside from what what they're doing. That's the question in terms of our perception of ourselves. And that's all the point that I'm making. Happy when your point fall more under the issue of the conscious versus the unconscious. Now, I probably say, based upon your analysis, you probably talking about about eighty percent of our people brought into this whole narrative of how they have presented King from the enemy point of view. You understand right. what I'm saying? Exactly right. Exactly right. You're right. That's 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 my point that I'm making. That's the point that I'm driving home is that for those of us who are unconscious, we would, in fact, believe the narrative put out by the, by the power structure. And to the extent that we believe what they put out, then we got to begin to question, you know, what is wrong, fundamentally wrong with us? And you're absolutely correct. It comes down to conscious versus unconscious. And as I said before, one of the reasons why propaganda is so effective is because it impacts people on an unconscious level. People don't even know that they think what they think. They don't even know what they know. They only assume to know what they know based upon what someone told them or what they've heard or what they read. And so it's very, very powerful in that context. But what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that any time you buy into that narrative, then I'm saying that you have a human responsibility to question that narrative. And if you look at your own life in terms of, you know, the, the day-to-day struggles in your own life, well, if you, if, if you sit and do the same thing over and over and over again, then it seems to me at some point you, you come to the realization whether you act on it or not, that this, this this constant theme of doing the same thing over and over again is counterproductive. So, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, it comes down to conscious versus unconscious. So I'm just throwing it out there for people who are unconscious who really believe that this is a, a direct uh, representation of who Dr. Martin Luther King was. Do they need to question why do they think that way? Anybody else want to weigh? And one thing about Martin Luther King's legacy that we have to understand is that he was about movements that involved the people, and he did not seek to acquiesce to um, political leaders in regards to move us forward. Because far too often we get enamored with political leaders, celebrities, et cetera, et cetera, and we cannot look to them as some type of um, messiah, as we did with him, unfortunately, as well. And that's the thing we have to understand in terms of some of those key people that support the same narrative. 
I have to say that the Congressional Black Caucus are some of the main culprits of this in terms of what they advocate and the policies they've accepted because of the money or prestige that was put into their position. So you got to understand that that's a conscious misleadership effort. I would agree with you, but I would add also that it it falls to people that have a better understanding of uh, King's work that, 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 that we put out the truth and that throughout his life, Martin Luther King Jr. was part of an organization or coalition throughout his life. From his days that he spearheaded organizations of the Montgomery Bus Boycott, and that was the work of the masses of Africans living in Montgomery. Uh, to, to, to his leadership of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference at the time of his transition, he belonged to an organization. And, he, and, and SCLC worked very closely with SNCC, especially during uh, 65 and 60s uh, th- uh, onward. And uh, so, so it's very important, uh, you know. So th- it's very important that we get out the organizations that were involved in that uh, in that human rights uh, struggle, you know, that took place during the '60s, which has been distorted by the media and the entertainment industry for their own individual gain. You know, panelists, in terms of what's going on in my world community, there are some things that you that, that I ran across this week that made me go, hmm. And I like when y'all respond to some of these things. One of them was, and we talk about the question of propaganda, and, you know, when we were taught when we were young, we said we should pay closer attention to titles while often names and things or names. Now, in Louisville, Kentucky, they called themselves giving a tribute to Muhammad Ali, and they decided to name an airport after, after Muhammad Ali. And they named it Louisville Muhammad Ali Airport. Something don't sound quite right about that title, panelists. Can you make out what, what the contradiction, at least for me, what that, what that was? If you're going to give a tribute to Muhammad Ali and make it in his honor name, why did they use the first name, Louisville, and then say Muhammad Ali? Why couldn't it be in... If you want to put Louisville some kind of way on, you know, geographically associated with it, why didn't they name it Muhammad Ali Louisville Airport? Why Louisville was first before Muhammad Ali? Does that make sense to anybody? I I would have named it Muhammad Ali International personally because when you look at the essence of Muhammad Ali's contributions to political struggle. He spoke to the international masses in terms of the issues that he was addressing. He was not confined to Louisville, Kentucky, or any particular region. He spoke on the global masses because there was a strong sense in him that something wasn't right and there was injustice against Africans on a big scale. So Muhammad Ali had to write a balance around him so that he could have the consciousness and speak out against it. And as a result of that, despite him being the best boxer there was in the prime of his career, Unfortunately, they took so much away from it, so it's no telling what kind of greatness he could have had in the ring had it not been taken away from him due to the fact that he was willing to stand up when so many sat down to address injustice. Anyone else? 
Yeah, I uh, I would agree, and also the fact that he was an international figure. I mean, he not. I, I mean, um, I mean, when he took his stances, he was not. He was not a, a micronationalist by any stretch. He did not, uh, you know, emphasize his Louisville connection at all. And I think you know he was uh, he was part of the a part of that segment of Africans that were influenced by the works of Martin Luther King and and uh, and Malcolm X, you know both. And uh, he and he and he took and, and and he'll go down in history most for what he did outside the ring, more than what he did inside of it. Because he took a principal stand against the Vietnam War. Yeah, I, you know, you know, one of the things, you know, one one of the things is that you know to put the Louisville name in front of Muhammad Ali, um, um, I suspect has a lot to do in terms of putting Muhammad Ali in his place. I think they wanted to honor Martin Luther King, but not to the extent that uh, he reigned superior. So I think by putting that Louis, that Louisville uh, title in front of my, I mean, uh, um, Muhammad Ali, I think you sort of on, on a very on a very uh, medium level, uh, sort of uh, minimize um, the influence or the impact that, that uh, Muhammad Ali had on the world. So I think that's probably the motivation behind it. Otherwise, as you've already said, one of the things that if you really want to honor the man, it would have been you know, uh, my, I mean, Mal, uh, Muhammad Ali International or something like that. Uh, at uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, Muhammad Ali uh, Airport at Louisville, or something like that. But his name should have been prominent simply because you, you you're honoring the man. The mere fact that they put that Louisville uh, portion in front of Muhammad Ali suggests possibly there was some kind of compromise in which those people who really didn't want to honor him felt like uh, in order in order to do so, we we'll do it, but not in in a grand kind of way. We'll do it in a, in a, in a more serving kind of way where we'll put Louisville up front. We become predominant and and followed by uh, Muhammad Ali. So I think that's what happened. I think the other contradiction is how they take those has a high value among their people, and at the end of their 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 their, their, their legacy, uh, they have a tendency to to change the essence of what it was all about. I never view Muhammad Ali as being pro-American. When he was in the right mind, I know as he got older, we can't see now. All kind of things happen, but but in essence, when you talk about Muhammad Ali and legacy, it can't go down as being pro-American. And I think it's another way how to use our symbolism and our so-called hero and heroes against us when they begin to make make it rewrite history. Your your response, panelists. I, I, I think Haki uh, is correct in, in that there was must have been some kind of compromise uh, um, that they, that uh, the right wing forces uh, evidently were able to to uh, persuade them to put put the Louisville uh, in front of Muhammad Ali's name. Uh, as, to, as to the international airport, I think in all fairness, uh, you have to. It's, it's, it's according to the flights. And whether you have international flights, whether that's your international airport. I know Washington Airport is not international, but Dallas Airport is international. And uh, I think it has to do with the flights that come in, whether that's your international airport. But I think there was some kind of compromise and that they put Louisville in front of 
Muhammad Ali in order to discredit him from from what? Thank you. I think I think you're right, Brother Africa. I think by putting a little bit up front, it sort of it sort of implies that uh, Muhammad Ali was pro-American. In fact, he was very clear in terms of the oppression African people fought, were confronted with in America. In that context, he was definitely not pro-American. Um, so I think but by putting a little bit of point, a little bit of part in front of his name, I think it sort of gives that connotation that somehow that, you know, he was, he was pro-American. So I think that was the whole idea. Um, and I think you're right. Uh, you know, early, later on in his life when he started talking about um, – you know, um, under the guise of Iwar Fri Muhammad, when he started talking about, you know, um, you know, um, you know, uh, his his pride in being American, I think to that point that uh, he pretty much uh, lost his, uh, his his faculties, and that there's whole dementia and these problems that confronted uh, um, Muhammad Ali was very, very evident. Now, one other thing that hit me this week, panelists, that made me go, hmm. Recently, I've seen some reports on news where recently there are certain high pressure, high blood pressure pills, uh, hydrochloride. They say these pills are now causing people to catch cancer, so they're taking these blood pressure pills off the market. My question becomes, hmm, is based upon what happened to all the people who've been taking those pills for years, and then they tell them to take the pills off the market and no longer take them. What y'all think that was all about? Did they just find this out, or is this one of these 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 attempts to say, "Hey, we didn't know about it, but you know we apologize, but this may be the side effect of which may end up um, catching them as well as taking it." And who is responsible for it? Where's the accountability to come in? Once they have now identified these particular blood pressure pills, also contribute to development of cancer in this patient. Well, Brother think, Africa, go ahead, Anthony. Now, I was going to say, I think the medical community overall is responsible uh, because, uh, you know, before, uh, you know, you prescribe any medication, uh, you know, the patient should be advised of possible side effects if they're known. And once they become known, uh, you know, the the patient owner should be advised of that. And, uh, you know, so I think it's, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's uh, it's the medical community in general, and specifically uh, the uh, FDA, the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration, which which their task is to try to protect people uh, from uh, from from these possible side effects by adequately doing the proper testing and uh, you know warning, so that people can uh, can make a formed decision about their medical treatment. You know the the, the problem is that um, you know um, the market always preempts uh, care. In other words. If it's profitable, irrespective of the damage that it does, if it's profitable, then it's the, the inclination is to put it out there. And let's keep that very clear on that point. Uh, there was a young, uh, a young, uh, young man. I've got his name, uh, but anyway, he's of Indian ancestry. He used to work with the FDA, and he talked about the fact that he was a whistleblower, and he talked about the fact that um, 
uh, the inspectors will come in and they would check out the process, but unnecessarily checking out the medication per se. And so he was clearly he was very clear that the kind of um, side effects, the very deadly side effects, were, were prominent among a lot of those medications that they were that they were dispensing. He understood that. He said, but the inspectors were interested in terms of in terms of doing that. They're more interested in window dressing when they come in, look at the process, and say, well, everything looks fine, it's all good, you know, prescription is approved. So clearly, uh, um, you know, that is a problem. Another thing, too, also, when we talk about the FDA, one of the things that the um, Trump administration, actually it's not far to blame Trump, it started, it started during the, uh, the um, George Bush administration. One of the things they're doing, they've been consistently cutting the budget for the FDA, and so, therefore, historically, when you have to have all of these protocols that you put in place to make sure that the, when these drugs went out, you know, that the side effects, you know, there were no side effects, that there were any potential problems were accounted for, and people knew precisely what they were getting. But now it's a different ball game. There is, there is no oversight. They can simply create something, and by word alone, they can tell the inspectors, listen, everything is fine, there's no problem, it's ready to go, and the drug is approved. So when you look at television, you look at these commercials, we talk about if you take a particular drug, the ramifications is, you know, high blood pressure, um, congenital issues, congenital issues, um, liver damage, uh, kidney damage, blah, 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 blah. And you say, well, damn, how the hell do you, wait a minute, you want me to take this and it potentially can kill me? How is that justifiable? Well, again, the market trumps, you know, humanity. It's all about the bottom line. And keep in mind, a lot of times when we talk about these medications, they're not, they're not scientific. There's someone's perception in terms of what they think should work. It's not scientific, and that is the problem. So a lot of things that go as science, in fact, are not science. Um, and because they give the legitimacy uh, by being called a science, people tend to believe that somehow if they take them, if they prescribe to them, that it would do no harm. Nothing could be further from the truth. Mm. Also, keeping the realms in the Medical Association of Pharmaceuticals, they also just recently released a report that the pharmaceuticals knew that when they created a drug they called Oxycontin, that it was too powerful really for human beings to take, but it still put it on the market. And this is one of the, one of the factors that has led to, they said, the crisis in the opioid uh, overdose among young, young, young people. Now, they knew this at the beginning, but then they just meant to it, but yet I don't see no accountability. So how do we respond to this type of information once you have received it? What do the people do with it? Uh, I think it's important that people begin to do their own research. And when it comes to a person's health, it's very important that they don't give absolute tr trust to any one source of information. You re it, it really becomes critical to uh, to participate in your health care to the extent possible, and I think uh, you know I think you know uh, a lot of companies exploit the low low level of education a lot of people have, and uh, and 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 therefore they're more, uh, they're more they're less willing to challenge. The, not the diagnosis provided by their doctors, and uh, and they don't and uh, and people don't do the research either either due to time constraints or lack of ability to find out what uh, what what they're taking can do, can do to their bodies, 
and uh, and they're not being adequately advised of all their options. So I think uh, so I think when it comes to uh, uh, healthcare, just like uh, environmental pollution, what you don't know can kill you. But but you know, brother Anthony, one of the problems is that the problem is much more a little bit more convoluted. Uh, one of the things, and when you talk about in terms of doctors, you know, who are paid to you know to uh, provide these prescriptions to their patients, a lot of times these doctors don't know specifically you know what these what these medications are. They're simply giving brochures. They're told that it's good for this ailment, that ailment, blah blah blah. But they don't know for sure if in fact it's good because they don't have uh, they don't have access to those studies to, to to understand exactly what it is that they're dispensing. They are paid to dispense those medications. And so, therefore, if, 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 and, and the problem is that, you know, when we, when we talk about the rank and file, I mean, the problem is that, you know, even if you provide rank and file information in terms of those particular medications, uh, the bottom line is that most of us are not trained to be doctors. And so, therefore, we can't reasonably conclude that what we're taking is good or bad for us, simply because we don't have that kind of training. A lot of us only have even basic understanding of chemistry. So I think it, it, it becomes very, very problematic in terms of, you know, putting the onus on, on, on the rank and file, simply who, who don't have the benefit of going to medical school or to pharmacology school to understand what these medications entail. So I think that the bottom line, I think the only thing people really can do when it, when it, when it comes to these medications is, is to take them in, in moderation, you know, as opposed to just take them as they prescribe, take them in moderation. Because if they're going to have some impact, in terms of your overall health, then if you take them in moderation, then there be, should be some improvement in terms of your condition, I would imagine. I'm just I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, but the point is that if you take it as prescribed, then the potential to harm you is so great that what other choices do you have in terms of other than taking them in moderation? So I think that is a very difficult situation when people find themselves is, but ultimately uh, we need a Food and Drug Administration that's fully funded, uh, which actually does the research to protect the public safety. But as it stands now, because the marketplace is more important than anything else, uh, these kind of prescriptions enter the marketplace all the time because they're simply profitable. So it sounds like people might be, it might depend upon the diligence of their uh, of their particular doctor that they go to in terms of, uh, you know, getting medicine that's safe, you know, for, you know, for their condition. And uh, and trust that, uh, that 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 the doctor knows what he or she is doing when they prescribe this medication, but that can be iffy too, because they're paid basically by the pharmaceutical industry and the health insurance companies. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That is that is a rub. That is a rub. I mean, if you're, if you're paid by the pharmaceutical dispenser's medication. Uh, then you know it, that's, that's, the bottom line is, is is about making money, and so therefore, if you give it a brochure saying that this outlines this medication and the potential side effects, and this is all that you're giving, then that's that's this, this, this propensity to believe that in fact what you're being given, the information you're being given, is thorough and correct. Often that's not the case because you're not going to to put on the market medications, and you're not going to acknowledge these medications potentially. Are deadly. You're not going to do that because you did that. There'd be no money to be made. There'd be no profit. People have all this is about profit. Nothing else. It's just about profit. Uh, people's health comes secondly, and a lot of that has to do in terms of how society is organized. So often people talk about how bad socialism is. 
But if you have a social system, then one of the first thing you can do is safeguard the health of the populace. And so funding for the FDA comes priority. It's not an afterthought. It's something that you have to do. In the context of the capitalist system, it's all about the money. And so, therefore, what you do in terms of bringing medications to market is irrelevant as long as it's profitable. And so this is the, so this is the problem in terms of how the society is organized. And this is why it's so important in terms of understanding the function of socialism and why it serves the interests of humanity. Well, you know, I think Anthony raises a really interesting doctor in terms of putting the burden on the doctors, to trust your doctors, because I agree with the points that y'all raised. I have been in doc doctor office where I've seen the young the young agents of pharmaceutical companies come to doctors and give them these new medicines and tell them to prescribe them to the to to, to their patients. Uh, and fully not aware of the implication of the medicine. And of course the doctors are blind because y'all just raised one of the major contradictions. They they could get sort of they get a kickback in terms of the use of this medicine. And the question that I would like to raise with y'all is what the purpose of struggling to create a, a, a medical a African medical sector among our people if it's not gonna be responsible and catered to the interests of our people. Why well, have African doctors that they could operate and practice medicine on the same basis that those who are not part of your community has done historically to your people. Very good point. Very good point. If 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 though, irrespective of the color, the skin color of the doctor, it's really irrelevant. Uh, they all play by the same game. If their approach of medicine is holistic, uh, in which they take into consideration nutrition, uh, take into consideration those. Um, those considerations that you expose on a daily basis. If you don't take all that into consideration in terms of creating a medical plan, then you're absolutely correct. All you have left is the same old system in which, you know, essentially these people come in, recommend these, these, these drugs to be prescribed, give you money to prescribe those drugs, and it's business as usual. So the color of the doctor's skin really makes no difference at all. Where it's good to see African doctors, you know, um, you know um, practicing their craft. The bottom line, if they're not going to do something in terms of, you know, ameliorating the uh, the situation uh, that people find themselves in when it comes to taking these drugs, you know, you're absolutely correct. The question is, then what useful purpose would they serve? So it's a very difficult situation that we're confronted with, Brother Africa, because one, on one hand, we do want our children to see, you know, um, um, you know, African doctors. We do want our children to see that. But the same token, we understand in terms of the system, uh, they are bound by the, the ethics and, and rules of that system, and oftentimes the ethics and rules of the system are not in keeping with, with the interests of humanity. So it is a fundamental conflict, and you're absolutely right. The ultimate solution is to, uh, is to change the system, and and in order to do that, our people have to be organized. That's what uh, that's what it comes down to. Because I mean. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it becomes on us to, 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 to change the system to a system that's more interested in preserving humanity rather than profits. And uh, it, it takes us being more educated, raising questions, and also forming uh, political organizations that are going to uh, do away with a system that is profit-based. 
In that phenomenon, Anthony, also is an issue of recognizing the importance of the interests of the collective versus the interests of the individual. Because one of the things what they do in terms of the educational system in, this, in capitalist society is that they make individuals invest so much time into a particular discipline. Because once they acquire a so-called credential in a particular discipline, it makes it very difficult for them to go against that institution. It makes it very easy to co-opt them to do to co-opt them in terms of doing things that may not be in the best interest of their people. I.e., when talking about making money and, and having a lifestyle that you would like to have as an individual at the expense of the people. I was talking to a sister the other day, and she was telling me it took approximately about 12 years, 12 year process to get her Ph.D. in the educational field, and I didn't realize it took that long to get some PhDs, not at all, but some, some, some disciplines at minimum, they would say about 12 years, right? And mm-hmm. when I thought about it, I could see the entrapment. Here they make you invest so much time into that discipline that it becomes very difficult for you willing willing to challenge the system. Exactly. And I think that's a good point you make, Brother Africa, which is why I think a lot of um, a lot of people that have doctorate tend to be so reactionary because they because they're, they're saddled can you hear me yeah yeah can you uh, yeah they're so saddled with that that they cannot you know what uh, that, that that without playing the game they cannot come up with the funds uh you know necessary to alleviate their debt to uh you, you know to these agencies that provided their loans and fellowships and maintain that corporate lifestyle that's often required of someone that uh you know that works as a professor Was yeah, I'm still here, yeah, are you finished? You sort of yeah. have some technical difficulty. Yeah, and Paris, last point, then we'll take a station break. We'll take a break, pause for the call, then we'll come back, and we'll talk about our theme tonight, protecting, projecting, and use of power. And related to this theme, which we'll, we'll discuss that when we come from our station break. But one other point for this week that made me go, hmm, I'd like to get your response to, panelists is that recently I uh, became aware of that there was, I believe, a press conference last week in Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland, the city of Baltimore, Maryland, by the mayor, and the mayor made a statement in reference to in reference to calling in and calling in the military in order to help fight the crime and the violence in the city of Baltimore. She's talking about calling in the Marines to help assist their local police department. What do y'all make of that decision and that line of thinking? Anyone, anyone go first? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think it, it's very dangerous. Uh, and it's a sign of, uh, and it's one of the, the signs of, uh, of fascism. The fact that the, the the line between police and military gets blurred, 
and uh, you know, and I think it's uh, you know, I think it it, it doesn't vote well for the uh, uh, you know for what little rights uh, you know the working class uh, has left available to it in Baltimore, and uh, and uh, you know the people suffer enough from police corruption and the abuse of authority that occurs. And uh, one of the things I, I, I read, I read an article in which uh, even though uh, marijuana is legal in Maryland now, 96% of the arrests for marijuana possession in Baltimore are of African people. So I mean I don't uh, so I think it I think it I, I think it uh it is very bad news if the mayor is considering you know calling in the military you know to help police the city. And uh, and the contradiction in the point that you made about the marijuana phenomenon happening in Baltimore is the same contradiction throughout the country. It's legal on the state level, but it's not recognized on the federal level. So on the federal level, you are in violation of community crime, so they can lock you up on the federal basis. That's the new game that they're playing there to incarcerate our people, particularly youth. Panelists, your response to the mayor talking about calling in the military, calling Marines for the city of Baltimore to respond to the so-called uh, crime issues within the city. But, but, but Anthony, Anthony is absolutely correct. Uh, it is a precursor to, to, to fascism. I mean, my position is very clear that fascism has been here for, you know, since Obama. Uh, so I don't think it's, it's a new phenomenon. But, it, but I see that's a continuation in terms of you know conditioning people uh, to accept fascism. And Africa is right. One of the, one of those, one of those, uh, one of the uh, tenets of fascism is this notion in terms of you know you know um, military you know, military protection, or this whole notion that you can be protected you know from crime if you had enough military personnel. But of course, inevitably, once you have these military personnel in place, then what mm-hmm. what happens is that not only does does the, does does um, that becomes a, a, a question in terms of you know whether or not they're going to you know, stop crime. It becomes a question of what they're going to do in terms of limiting one's one's human rights, and that is a real danger that we're talking about. And and one of the things that we got to keep in mind is this mayor who wants to implement such a program is doing precisely what those in power want her to do, which speaks to that class issue. Because it seems to me if she's conscious, then she would have said, no, 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 we're not going to bring in the military to police the people. We're going to improve the police functioning, and we're going to do what we can in terms of you know, consolidating relationships between the police and the community in terms of doing something to combat this issue of crime. And also we're going to do more in terms of improving the situation for the people in the community so they don't have to resort to crime as a means of, of survival. So clearly, you know, if she was progressive, if she was a person who was in the classes, then she would have said that uh, I'm not going to do that. But the tendency in terms of, you know, uh, taking the easy, using the easy solution, it's something that's very, very prominent when we talk about, you know, the the, the, the outgrowth of fascism. And this is this is very, very clear. So this question of fascism is going leaps and bounds in society, and unfortunately many, many people just don't understand it when they see it. But this is a criticism example of creeping fascism, and so I think people got to be very much concerned about what, what it is. You know, when we look at the history of the power of the vote and the reason why the vote is important, it raises the question, if we're going to vote and we have these kind of politicians in position to make these kind of decisions, we're going to have to look at this issue of the value of the vote. Uh, it can be used as a tool for you, and it looks like it can be used as a tool against you. 
So right now what we're going to do, we do have a sister from Cameroon. I see she has just joined us. Sister Celine, we're talking about what's going on in your community and the world. Is there anything you'd like to share with our listening audience, Sister Celine? Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Um, Brother Lee, uh, good morning. In Cameroon, it's uh, 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, good morning. Again to be online. Yes, it's good night, evening. Is it night, midnight to you? No, good evening. Yeah, with us it's good morning. It's 2 a.m. in the morning in Cameroon. Oh, we are in Cameroon. The human rights are being abused every day. People are in the bushes suffering because of the crisis in Cameroon. And people are displaced everywhere. They don't have food to eat. It's not easy. Children cannot even go to school. The secessionists are the people persecuting children, cutting workers' hands, that nobody should walk. They cut even people's legs. They cut even children's hands when children struggle to go to school, disturbing children from going to school. It's not easy. People are just being displaced. It's not easy. I, I'm sure I came late because... I struggled and went there for an activity, uh, and I came back late yesterday, so tired, so tired. I'm really tired because I had a workshop uh, with some of our far- women farming groups. I had a workshop on a organic manure. We are trying to stop the use of uh, these chemical fertilizers on our farms. So we are trying to educate the women on how they can come up with their own manure and use on their farms. So we had a training, a two days workshop on training the women, smallholder farmers uh, on organic manure, how they can work on their farms and produce good food that will not harm them, that will not give them cancer, that will not give them diseases that will, (coughs) will bring sickness on them. It has not been easy on me. And in such meetings, we are afraid. You don't even know whether you will be attacked or not. But we keep on, we keep on struggling because we cannot just require that there is crisis, and we don't do what we we don't do what we are supposed to do. But when you move on, you see people who are really in need. They need food. They need clothes. They need help but you will not have anything to help them. So at times, that really breaks my heart. It makes me feel so bad because it's not easy. We really need other people to intervene in the situation of Cameroon. We need some people to intervene. How this crisis can stop? We don't know why it can stop because our president is not saying anything and the boys are in the bushes just killing and destroying cars and doing terrible things. In fact, it's not easy with us. Not easy. Oh, my, my, my. It's not easy. I'm happy to meet you people. I don't need to share this more of what you is know, happening sister, in our country, Cameroon. Mm-hmm. You know, Sister Celine, mm-hmm. I'd like to raise this with my panelists and with the listening audience. You know, this is a good example, panelists, in terms of when we talk about 
what's going on in the world as it relates to African people. We have the same phenomenon. But one of the things we don't have is having the the means of being able to communicate and share with the rest of our communities throughout the world on what is happening with, with our communities. Now, Sister Lee is talking about the crisis that's taking place in the, in the Cameroon. But apparently the problem is there are so many crises that are taking place in diverse communities. One of the major contradictions is we have no way to communicate with each other. What can be done to change the reality, panelists? Um, one, I think uh, the work that um, uh, that we're doing, uh, you know, through the African Awareness Association, this program and similar programs like this one, uh, and we have to build, you know, linkages as much as possible, so that uh, so that we so that we can we need to talk to each other. Because uh, what I see, what, what I hear going on in the Cameroon, is not very different from what's happening in Colombia, Ecuador, and uh, Honduras tonight, for example, and to a certain extent wherever in the diaspora and on the continent Africans live. Uh, you know, uh, our labor is being exploited ruthlessly. We suffer from inadequate education, inadequate health care. And um, you know, and, and 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 the working masses are suffering tremendously, disproportionately, and we even feel the uh, feel the effects inside what is supposedly the wealthiest society in the world. So I think uh, we need mechanisms to communicate with each other, so that you know, so that we can we can also share certain solutions. Because there might be some some solutions that that might uh, be working in a Cameroon that could be applicable elsewhere, and vice versa. But we need to develop means of sharing information with each other. But Shaleen, too many. Shalene, before I talk to my rest of panelists, I like to, we would like to hear from you. How can they get in contact with you? What are some ideas you think people can do on the outside? To help your situation. Oh my God! Uh, I think that if we can have some people that can talk to our president, or maybe so that they can come out for a roundtable conference, discuss a roundtable dialogue to discuss on this matter, and maybe it can help. Can help in other situations. Those people in the bushes that some are just dying of hunger, and you cannot have a means of reaching them. But those that you reach them, you don't even have to give them food. They need food. They need food to eat. They need medical care. If we can have some volunteers that can go to the bushes to take care of the people, it's not easy. When you move in Cameroon, you see houses deserted, houses are being burned, schools are being burned. Uh, in the southern Cameroon, it's not, I don't know, I don't know how I can ex- explain the situation. But we are still in there, struggling to see what we can do. They need help, they need food. People need to eat. Because there's no way they can go, they are 
we have refugees in Nigeria. We have internally displaced refugees. Some have left the other parts of the Cameroon and they are hiding in the other parts, but they don't have houses, they don't have anything. Those type of people need to be to be fed because they need food upon all. In this life, without food, you will die of hunger. Even if the gun does not shoot you. If a bullet does not meet you, the bullet of hunger will meet you and you will die. So it's not easy. If we can have food for the internally displaced people, we will also help them in another way. So how can people who may want to send you resources to help you get food, how can that be done? Who can they contact? How would they the logistics, how would that be able to, how would we be able to reach out to help you in that regard, Celine? Give us some ideas. Oh, I think they can reach us through you. If they have anything for us and they give to you, uh, you're going to send it. We have Express Union. Uh, we have the MoneyGram. We have a Western Union. That money can reach Cameroon. And we have uh, banks. Maybe I have to figure out and look for an international bank that if there is anything to help these people, you can pass through the bank or anywhere. I think that is the only solution. I'm not there in America, so you are there to represent us. Okay, we will do something into a listening audience. Let's talk about sometime during the week. What can we do to help facilitate that? Once we come up with a plan, next week or so, we'll share with the public in terms of how they can help, okay? We will work okay. on that. We'll get back later on during this week to see how can we logistically um, be a service. Because I understand this crisis is something, Brother Hackey, that African people are facing all over. And I think this is where the, the need for the understanding of Pan-Africanism comes into play. Uh, Brother Hackey, what you done heard so far, what the, the, you know, what do you make of um, how can we create a better f- facilitate, a better understanding of how, to, how can we communicate with one another across the world and throughout the world? What would be some of your recommendations and ideas to the listening audience how we as a, as a group collective can better facilitate the well-being of our people regardless of where we may be? Well, you know, one one of the things, you know, I think about Sister Harriet in terms of what she's trying to do with her Women's United uh, organization. Uh, one of the things that we would organize as a community uh, where we can actually share, pool our resources, and we could make sure, like on a, on a, on a, like a bi-monthly basis, we could have a representative going to prospective African countries in terms of ensuring that uh, monies and um, the kind of things that the people need are provided. Uh, but I think that's going to call for a lot of, you know, organization. Uh, so that's one of the things that I'm thinking in terms will be viable in terms of increasing the communication by the same token, providing the resources that the people need who are struggling in various communities throughout the continent. Uh, you know, so, but that calls for mass organization. And, of course, if we get the churches involved in terms of participating, if we pick up, if we get one church, particular, you know, pick a particular country, another church pick another particular country, blah, 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 if we could get maybe, you know, 50, 50 to 60 churches to participate in this program, then we could, we could facilitate, you know, the kind of share, sharing the resources 
uh, and the kind of visitations on a bi-monthly basis to ensure that we keep abreast of what's going on and we that we that we uh, you know genuinely understand what the issues are as it affects our, our brothers and sisters on the continent. So I think that's one of the things that we can do. But of course, that calls for organization. So we, we struggle, and of course, I'm sure that those people would say, "Well, we got our own problems in America in terms of in terms of poverty," and that is that's very very true. Uh, but you can't equate the kind of poverty in the U.S. with the kind of poverty the brothers and sisters back home are confronted with. It's a different kind of poverty, much more stark, uh, much more um, much more intense uh, kind of poverty. So clearly, I think that's one of the things that we can do in terms of, you know, um, providing for our brothers and sisters and assisting our brothers and sisters on the continent, but it's going to take organization. So the struggle continues in terms of getting people to understand the importance of organization. Brother Moses, you've been listening in. Anything you'd like to share up to this point? Yeah, it sounds good. Um, I think we definitely need some kind of organizational structure there. That we can send money to uh, if, in terms of the motherland and uh, uh, African brothers and sisters. Uh, we need, you know, some kind of organization, you know, like she said, MoneyGram and Western Union and all that's there. But we need an organization that that uh, that's the end, the end, the end game, uh, and. Uh,
who has just joined us, and we were discussing what's going on in our community. We have been talking about various issues and things that are going on in our community that are impacting our people, as well as humanity in general. One of the things that Sister Celine for very several weeks have been calling in in terms of seeking support for our brothers and sisters in Cameroon. They have a, 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 a crisis going on in Cameroon where people are being forced to leave their homes, children can't go to school, people are being, being killed. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that is going on throughout the African world. And one of the questions becomes, Number one, how can we communicate with each other on a global basis, find out what's going on in our communities? And two, how do we organize ourselves to assist those in need? Now, we're going to move into our theme tonight. This is going to be part one, and next week will be a continuation part two. Our theme tonight is protecting, projecting, and use of power. Protecting, projecting, and the use of power. And that was a real interesting article, panelists, and I want you to put this article in the, in the context of all these things that we discussed tonight and around this question as a concrete example, the crisis in Cameroon. The title of the article is The Black Wall Around Barack Obama, Who Does It Protect Him Against? It was written by Bruce A. Dixon from Black uh, Agenda Report, written on the 6th of April, 2011. Now, I think the article raised some fundamental issues that we must come together as people to resolve in terms of our sophistication and our understanding of the political process in terms of how it may benefit us the best as we come to understand the type of system, the type of institutions, and how individuals function in institutions as it relates to one's interests. Now, in this article, the fundamental question it raises is that the presumption that Barack Obama, no matter what he does or doesn't do, enjoyed nearly unanimous black support, okay? There's a wall around this president. But who does it protect him against? Does it protect him against the Republicans? Does it protect him against banksters? Does it protect him against Tea Party people? Does it protect him against warmongers? Does it protect him against those who torture or does it protect him against black people or African people at the left? His supported base. That's the question. That's the, the thesis of this particular article. Now, in the context of this article, and speaking about this question, trying to assist our brothers and sisters in Africa throughout the world, panelists, and so then you go in, we are caught in a very complicated situation. Number one, it becomes a political question in terms of not only who we support, or how do, but also how do we prioritize. It was mentioned in several programs in the past, panelists, that because the U.S. government has its own policies and its own self-interest, and many times the U.S. policy towards Africa is not a policy towards African people favorably. They can put you in the combined box of being in a position of supporting terrorism, and then you become, you have to deal with that reality. So in terms of when we talk about identifying support and supporting people, how do we deal with this question of, in the context of this article, the black wall around Barack Obama, who does it protect, and who are the insiders and who are the outsiders, Brother Haki? Yeah, well, I think to answer your question, Brother Africa, one thing that you have to first and foremost understand 
when you elect leadership, you know, uh, you know, to this to this to this uh, uh, electoral body, known as the president, uh, president of the United States. The thing we have to understand is that to the extent that these these individuals um, see the capital system as being legitimate, speaks to the kind of value system that they have. If in fact you believe that capitalism is the way to go and you safeguard that system, then you got to understand that the kind of policies that you espouse are going to be those policies that favor the powerful. And superposed upon the constitutional reality is that as a president, as a president of the United States, you're bound by constitutional law to carry out certain uh, certain policy. And so therefore, you're not free to simply change those at will. And this is the fundamental problem that we have. So to think that you're going to elect someone like Barack Obama and, uh, and think that you're going to roll around him because you're going to protect him, the question is, what obligation does he have to you? Now, clearly, uh, the African community has historically always surra- you know, surrounded you know, the black politicians out of the guys you know, that uh, by protecting them, building the walls around them, that somehow we, we make it possible for them to do a better job. But the question becomes a better job to do what? Well, obviously, a better job in terms of perpetuating the pressure against the very same people who supported them and put them in power. So clearly, this notion that you know that surrounding Barack Obama, you know, with this this, this impenetrable wall, is is, is, is somewhat ironic uh, because it does nothing in terms of safeguarding the interests of African people who put him in office in the first place. But let me just throw up two quick things because of the question of time. All right. One of the things I would ask, when you, when you support these candidates, you know, for the office of the President of the United States, one of the things is that you got to ask yourself, oh, is the President obligatory to remove the structural economic policies or barriers that exist? The answer is, of course not. Does the institution limit presidential powers? Of course it does. So those, those powers, those things which the President can do are prescribed. Now, if that is the situation, then it seems to me it's coming upon the community to fight for those things that empowers it. Uh, we can't anticipate, we can't expect uh, people, you know, who who are, you know, president of the United States to actually empower the communities because it's not designed to empower the communities. That is something that we must do. And so it's important we understand that and not be deceived and thinking that somehow we vote for a guy simply because he's black, that he's going to get in positions of power, and he's going to turn around and do those kind of things in which we got to do for ourselves. Brother Anthony, your response in terms of this question uh, this wall around Barack Obama, who does it protect? Who's on the inside? Who's on the outside? And can you put it in context of understanding what things p- citizens can do inside the United States as relates to giving and showing that support to brothers and sisters outside of the United States, recognizing that there are certain foreign policies that are geared towards not to allow this kind of collaboration to take place and the danger of it, danger of it. Yes. Well, um, let's see. In terms of uh, this political wall, and as um, Brother Haki alluded to, we build this wall around all elected uh, African political officials in the U.S. Uh, but in terms of uh, you know the presidency, it protects them from criticism and accountability to us. Uh, the people that are inside the wall are the Democratic and Republican Party uh, machinery, 
the uh, uh, the 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 bureaucrats. Uh, let's see the uh, Congress, uh, uh, the judges, all the political officials, etc. And uh, what it does, what it did, uh, in retrospect, is it protected Obama from criticism from the African community. Because he was not really beholden to them. He was primarily beholden, in addition to the U.S. Constitution, he had to abide by the rules and policies of the Democratic Party, of which he's a part of. And so in terms of, um, you know, constraints, if we stay within the uh, constraints of the present political system, there is very uh, there isn't much we could do. Uh, there's very little we can do to help our brothers and sisters at home, and this is because uh, you know without effective organization, we could be uh, uh, could be accused of collusion with the enemy. In other words, those who are opposed to U.S. interests, and uh, that's one contradiction. And also, the thing about it, though, just because uh, politics in the U.S. is very complicated. And, uh, you know, you really, and if, and the history has taught us that you really can't judge, you know, uh, decision-making contrary to what this African preacher mentioned by a person's ethnicity. They cannot do anything what they uh, th- that they want to do once they're in office. They're prescribed by the po- their political affiliation, and also by the constitution that governs uh, their authority in office. And uh, and because a lot of Africans don't understand this, let alone the constitution in generally, unless they major in the law, you know. We're uh, we're constrained to the extent to which we can help our brothers and sisters in other parts of the diaspora and at home. So the so the way to 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 do that is we have to form our own political organizations and also so, uh, select someone from amongst our organization that's going to run for these political offices. We cannot, uh, you know, do it within the system because the system is rigged against African and other oppressed people. Sister Celine, are you with us? Um, yes, I'm there. In terms of relationships of the government of Cameroon, what is the government relationship? You don't have to talk a lot about it because I know you're sensitive. But what is the relationship between the government in Cameroon and its relationship to the U.S. government? Is it is it has a close or supporting relationship, or is the relationship where it's sort of distance, not that close? How would you view that relationship? It's a close relationship because the uh, the army base of us of West Africa of America is, is built in Cameroon. We have the embassy here in Cameroon, American embassy. We have an American embassy in Cameroon. They are doing things together. They are close, very close. 
Okay. Okay. Okay, Brother Zabari, when you look at this article, one of the things it mentioned is what is the responsibility? When we say responsibility of the politicians in, over here, and, but in this case they're talking about Barack Obama and his administration, they talk about what is the responsibility of, of, of that administration to the 40 million African people here here in America. What would be your position? Does he have responsibility to him, or do he have responsibility to the greater country as a whole? That's normally a trick bag they always put us in. How would you respond to that question? What greatest responsibility he has? To the country as a whole or to the people that he represents? Well, <clears throat> to answer the question that you pose, I would say the responsibility of that administration would be to ensure that the citizens' three has what it needs to ensure a reasonable life and that they will make sure that things will be as equitable as possible and it will be their responsibility to speak up and fight against those things which um, enable the disparities we see on a number of levels. Clearly, they were antagonistic towards such a cause, but that's what they should be. They should be embracing humanity, not trying to ensure that humanity is going to be at the whim of those who have um, the money. Because unfortunately, they were very capitalist-driven because we got to understand that when we look at Obama's history, he went to the Milton Friedman School of Economics. And if you know anything about Milton Friedman, he was a super capitalist who wanted to create a gross imbalance where those that were the elite and um, descendants of the elite would have all of the influence. So clearly that's what Obama was a figurehead for, unfortunately. But at the same time, we got to understand that today he was a figurehead. There were clearly powerful forces behind him, but nonetheless, we know what interests he represented that wasn't towards the people. You know, Brother Moses, I find this article will be real interesting because around the question of who does this wall protect him against, it raises some possibilities. Can you speak to the issue of the relationship between the Republicans, the banksters, the so-called Tea Party members, war mongers, and torturers? What has been his relationship to those subgroups? Based upon this article, from your perspective, brother, brother Moses. Oh, these these are all the insiders of inside the wall. These people are, are all the part of the establishment, and uh, and Barack Obama, you know, in spite of the rhetoric, was very much an establishment person. He 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 expanded the drone program where. He was killing people uh, right and left. Uh, you know, he, you know, this wall was was it's just uh, uh, some kind of national security of the United States wall or something. Uh, it certainly wasn't in the, on behalf of the masses of the people. It, it ensured that he that the criticism of him was was downplayed and and uh, and and basically. He was able to uh, carry out the dictates of, of the of the imperialist powers, uh, expanding Africom. Uh, you know, there's no end to uh, to the, the, the amount of uh, of uh, uh, assault on the rights of the people that he 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 was the chief head of. And so I, I don't 
uh, you know, you know, in terms of uh, the color of his skin and and the psychological uh, uh, warfare in terms of ideologically whether you could be black and 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 be president, uh, that he he definitely broke down some of those barriers, but uh, but but uh, like he said, uh, black black presence is not black power, and and, uh, and so you know, Obama represented the, the liberal bourgeoisie and uh, and uh, his program, and his, which is not in the interest of the masses of the people. Thank you. Your mm. brother. Yes, go ahead, Palace. Someone want to say something? Brother Haki, you know, Brother Bruce made made a presentation, his article that does it protect him against black people and the left? This is full base. If you read the article, Brother Haki, he arrived at the position that this will protect him against uh, African people and the left. But yet, it's supposed to be his base. Why? Why is this true? Based upon your your analysis of reading this article, what support base does he have that support the position that this wall is a wall to protect him from the left and from African people? I think I think it does. I think it does. I think one of the things is by creating this wall, essentially, what they're saying <coughs> is that uh, uh, Obama is. Um, uh, um, is, is is beyond reproach. That any criticism is, is, will make him look bad, and the process make us all look bad. And so there's an incentive in terms of projecting him because they make it think it look make it look like we are all you know um, uh, proper American citizens. So I think um, to the extent that um, uh, that um, when they when they shield when they when they shield Obama from any type of criticism, they do it to their own detriment. But one of the things I think the motivation behind this whole this whole desire to create this wall, I think to some extent there's this perception that um that, that the system is a legitimate system and that any problems that exist in society are, are can be either dealt with or side or, or problems for the making of the individuals. And so therefore if you don't see the system fundamentally being part of the problem, then 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 you don't want to create a scenario in which conceivably uh or where Obama actually becomes well, I don't want to say that, but let me just say that when a, when Obama you know is protected by the wall, one of the things I, I'm trying I'm trying to be diplomatic about this, but one of the things about this is that you know um, you know you got to look at the whole issue of class, uh, and, and and one of the things is that when we look at class, it's pretty good predictor in terms of how people you know see the world. Uh, when you look at his parents, uh, both affiliated with the CIA, when you look at his grandparents, both affiliated with the intelligence community. So clearly, this notion in terms of this kind of obligation to the system is very uh, is is a uh, is a uh, prominent in the mind of Barack Obama. And so, in that context, you realistically expect him to do anything that's contrary to what that system expects him to do. One of the things when you look at Obama's platform, and I'm gonna make this real quick. I know we're short on time. When we talk about the expansion of the military, when you talk about Africa, and you look at Africom, and you see all of these troops over in Africa creating all kind of chaos in Africa. Uh, Obama played a big part in terms of spearheading that whole move in terms of you know all these people going to Africa. In fact, Obama was one of the first American presidents to actually bomb an African state. So that's very very interesting when you stop and think about it. 
So when you think about in terms of interest of, of African people, you talk about the historical oppression that African people face. For this man to actually be a part of that process speaks values in terms of how much he belittled the lives of the very same people who built this wall around him. But all this wall being all geared toward in terms of making sure that we're perceived as as respectable uh, as patriotic citizens of America, even though the oppression African people face is is is, is a very very extreme. We want to project this notion that, in fact, that we're very, very patriotic against all else, uh, which explains why this wall has always been erected around not only Obama, but all black, uh, black, uh, black uh, politicians, you know, in America. You know, um, Sister Celine, uh, in terms of speaking to our listening audience of Africans from all around the world, particularly to Africans in the United States, I would like for you to take your time and explain to them why should we have an interest in the affair of African people in Cameroon. Because many Africans still run the issue of in the confusion that Africans don't see us in Africa. Africans in, the, in Africa don't see Africans in the United States as being Africans. When you speak to our community here throughout the world, while we as African people should come together as one. To me, I know that you are Africans and we know we have we have our African brothers overseas. Um, I don't think wherever you are, if you have an if you are an African, we have an identity of Africans. Wherever we are, people know us as Africans. So I don't think some people are there who are refusing that we are not Africans. When I you remember when I come to the United States, we are always together because I recognize that you are African. And we recognize that you are African. So I don't think somebody will say that oh, some uh, Africans, some Africans are not recognizing other people as African Africans. I don't believe that. I don't believe it. So if we come to Cameroon and our brothers and sisters will see us as extension of them, that's what you're saying? Yes. Are you not Africans? We have the same color. We have the same status. We have smaller people in Africa. We have fat people. We have tall people in Africa. And we have the same color, the same as people in America. Do you know the way they were waiting for you, the year you promised coming, and uh, but you didn't come? Oh, my, my, my. My women even sold uniforms waiting for you. And you say we don't recognize you people like Africans? Well, well, uh, sister, we can tell you don't give up hope. We're still working on that on, on that reality to make that happen maybe one day. So, um, you know, bear with us. Don't give up on us, okay? But in terms of this I'm whole not, question... I'm but, not giving up. Okay, good, good. But in I terms said I'm of not this giving question, up. We are together. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. Brother Anthony, I think in terms of this whole question of the necessity for pan-Africanism, I also call for the necessity of creating a political, organ- political organization that can direct the files and energies of our people on a global basis. Will you speak to the necessity for a pan-African organization, and what role do you see the AAPRPTC playing as we talk about these global problems? Certainly. Uh, let's see, um, we're being exploited on a global scale. 
and uh, and the problems that that are going on uh, uh, that Sister Selene is describing in Cameroon aren't too different for what's going on in say uh, Nigeria, uh, Sudan, Zimbabwe, and uh, and uh, other parts of Africa as well. And this is caused by the heavy present the heavy presence of imperialists in Africa, particularly Africom. And uh, and uh, so st- solution we have to come up with a solution that works on a continental scale, and that solution is Pan Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. One of the one thing our primary pro the primary program of the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. AAPRPGC is to build a critical mass of cadre that can build that mass political organization that can uh, alleviate the suffering of our people worldwide. Uh, Because the reason why we're suffering worldwide is because we don't have control of our home base. It's being controlled from outside. That is why there's so much suffering in areas like the Cameroon and uh, and uh, and other parts of Africa, because Africans aren't control aren't in control of their own resources. They mm-hmm. are they are extracting resources for the benefit of uh, of uh, of other people. Okay, brother Zubari. And Brother Moses, in terms of this, this whole question of looking at uh, African politicians and the role they play in terms of shaping their ability to function internally and externally, how do we not fall into the trap of saying we must support a African politician solely because they are African? How do we not fall in that trap? How do we begin to educate our people, begin to become more critical? Of critiquing, as Brother Haki will also talk about the class contradiction among our people. Brother Bobby first, and Brother Moses. In order to do that, it's important that we have to get to the position where we're going to present our history for what it is. We cannot fall victim to certain people outside of a context that want to paint certain narratives that are just full of propaganda and misappropriate what our legacy is. We have to establish that because until we until we do that, we gotta understand that there's a misinformation campaign that's been working for centuries and that's not going anywhere. It's gonna only take on new forms. So we have to be diligent in our pursuits too present the history for what it is unbiased. Brother Moses, your take? How do we not fall in this 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 this, 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 this trap of making African people feel compared to vote for an African politician solely because they are African? We have to we have to have a program of action. We have to have a program, a plan as to how we're gonna Pursue our interests, and once we have that plan, we we have to 
support people who are carrying out their plan. We have to have people who are carrying out their plan. And that is not about pigmentation of skin, but it's about the plan of action and who who actually will carry out that plan. And uh, so it's about a program of action ultimately. And uh, we, we, we keep getting sold out by our politicians, but we we don't have too many states states people these days. People who stand stand for something and and uh, and fight for it. But we have politicians who are who are shaping their 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 interests with uh, with whoever whoever's carrying the most money. I guess uh, uh, there so lots of corporate greed. The the uh, the black congressional black caucus is an example of that. Uh, we we have to have people who are who are who are, who are, who are willing to carry out a, a program of action, and we have to work out a program of action that calls for organization. Uh, uh, as brother uh, 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 Anthony has pointed out, you know. Uh, independent organization with an independent program that's what's called for, and uh, so this is a, this is a real problem. It's building that organization and, and carrying out that program. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Bones. You know, Brother Haki, let's talk a little bit about this 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 this, 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 this African war around not only the Obama administration, Obama, but. African politician in general. I think in terms of um, Bruce Dixon's critique of this article, it basically applied to most Africans in this country, politicians. One of the things that the world doesn't protect him against is against Republican-led assault on democratic rights. Talk a little bit about that, Brother Hakeem. Yeah, I think, you know, we can't lose sight of the fact that we're talking about a system. And because we're talking about a system, there are those people who protect their their interests. The interest of the ruling class is not the interest of the masses of people. Uh, that's particularly epitomized by the, the, the functioning of the Republican Party. They are very adamant, you know, that what's good for the wealthy is good for, this, good for society. And so, therefore, they pursue those interests irrespective uh, of what Democrats say. The irony is that when they pursue those interests of the wealthy, the Democrats do nothing to fight back. The question becomes, why don't the Democrats fight back? Why don't the Democrats make people aware of the fact that's, that, that they should be fighting for socialism in this country. Why is it that people in the society shouldn't be fighting? Why is it that people in the society are not educated to fight against uh, 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 Medicare for all? Why is it that people are not fighting for decent wages in society? Why are the Democrats not pushing this agenda? Well, clearly, when we talk about the, the nature of the system, then keep in mind those Democrats in which we vote and we put into power also have, have similar class interests. They don't care about the suffering of the masses of folks. They may articulate, they may express some concern, some marginal concern in terms of the suffering of African people. But when it comes down to it in terms of policy or, 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 or their resistance to fight policies which are and you know, um, disadvantageous toward interests of African people, they're, they're nowhere to be found. So clearly uh, we're not surprised that when we talk about uh, you know, this, this, this Republican onslaught, uh, that clearly they understand that there's there really no adversary. In fact, as Malcolm X always said, the political system is, 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 is one coin with two sides. 
one being the Republicans, other being the Democrats. And so clearly, uh, you know, these so-called Democrats that we vote, these black Democrats in particular, could never serve the interests of the African people. And Brother Anthony, can you speak to this so-called African war around the Obama administration, the African politicians, politicians? It doesn't protect them against the forces aiming to privatize education. Speak to that a little bit, Brother Anthony. Certainly. As a matter of fact, the privatization of education increased under the Obama administration, as did political repression in general. And uh, and uh, this is something that Africans have have not been keen on in general, and, and the fact that uh, that really that uh, that really the uh, Obama represented the interests of the ruling class of society, which is not which is primarily but not exclusively European, but it represents uh, you know the ruling bourgeoisie. And uh, and uh, and uh, generally, African could care, uh, Obama could care less about the masses of suffering African people, even though he fronted as if he did. And uh, and uh, people have to understand that in this society, uh, your political uh, uh, the organization where you place your political allegiance is more important. Than your ethnicity, or even religion, and you know, and, and, and you know, to a certain extent. And so well, when we can when I stop we you start... for a sucker? Can I stop you for a sucker? You may raise a real interesting point, and I'd like to repeat that again for our listening audience. You raise the issue of your allegiance to a political entity versus your ethnicity. Repeat that point again. Sure. Uh, we have to pay close and closer attention to a, uh, an individual's political allegiance uh, to, uh, uh, to 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 what, what organization they owe their allegiance to, as opposed to their ethnicity, and be and and that's where and that's where where a lot of us get confused. And uh, because a person's political allegiance tells you more about what they do once they get in office than what their ethnicity does. And uh, the problem, and uh, and uh, and I will simplify it by saying that Kwame pointed out a long time ago that black visibility is not black power. Well said, to Brother Jabari and Brother Moses, can you speak to this African war around uh, the Obama administration and all African politicians? This this so-called African war around them, around these politicians doesn't protect them from Wall Street um, gangsters and bankers and corporate thugs. Speak to that, Brother Jabari, and then Brother Moses. Earlier, I alluded to the fact that Obama was educated at the Milton Friedman School of Economics. If you know any bare minimum about that particular school, you will know that the individuals that um who tend to go to it are very much pro-capitalism. And think you understand what the capital, capitalism is called, considering how important the stock market is. 
Obama is at their whim to do their bidding. As we know with his policy, whether it was the bailout or other policies he took on, he, he supported and proudly promoted those endeavors which would make sure that Wall Street would continue to have major money flowing in. He wasn't a critic of it. He didn't question the fact that Wall Street's background comes from that of enslavement, because if you do your research, you'll find that a lot of the terms on Wall Street are terms that were based out of enslavement. And at one point in time, you want to know how to, what was the most valuable Wall Street stock, whichever organization had what were considered the best enslaved stock in terms of being able to make the necessary goods to make a big profit. So given that he did not denounce those things or um, speak to that, it's clear that he was at their whim to be a puppet under their control because it's much more of them than it is him in terms of the kind of resource he had compared to what they do as an entity. So that's what we got to understand. He's an individual, but he was controlled by powerful entities. And, Brother Moses, we also, we also can say this African war around Barack Obama and African politicians, it doesn't protect them from war makers, war criminals, and this military-industrial complex. Speak to that a little bit, Brother Moses. Yeah, uh, the article points out, like the war makers, the banksters were inside the Barack wall long before the inauguration, even before the election. When George Bush couldn't pass his own bailout bill through Congress, he had to summon Barack Obama to D.C. Obama hauled his campaign for a week or two and lined up Democrats to vote for the Bush bailout. Without their votes, it could not have passed. Once in office, Obama doubled down on the bailout, doling out more than $21 trillion to his benefactors thus far. So we see that Obama, you know, Obama part of the corporate America, and Obama, you know, uh, you know, has done, has, has, you know, has an interest in, in, uh, Pursuing uh, uh, health care, it seemed, but even then, he, he he was on the backs of 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 uh, of the 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 Americans who who could not afford to pay it, and basically he 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 supplemented the 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 insurers, we gave them a guaranteed audience, basically uh, a guaranteed clients and uh it, it passed legislation that way instead of an all out uh 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 one signal payer system itself, you know, he 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 sold out to the corporate interest ultimately. And uh I I Barack Obama, you know, you know, like I said, he uh, the drones, I mean he was he was he continued the wars uh, there was no difference between him and Bush and and uh, and Clinton and the rest of the Democratic Party and the, the Democratic Republican duopoly. Uh, they basically had the fundamentally the same agenda when it came to American imperialism and American capitalism. Uh, you know. Obama, you know, gave the illusion of a general capitalism, but this was still capitalism. Thank you. Okay, we only have a few minutes left. We're going to give Celine. Sister Celine, we'd like to bring you back, and we would like for you to go ahead and, again, speak to our listening audience in terms of um, um, 
the need to support our brothers and sisters in Cameroon. Sister Lee, you'll find it us on sharing with our listening audience the need to support and what's going on with our brothers and sisters in Cameroon. Sister Celine. Okay. Oh, thank you, people, very much. I've been listening to I've been listening to you. No matter that I'm so tired, I'm still up. I've not slept. Um, you know our brothers and sisters in Cameroon. It's not easy. We really need your prayers. We need people to really pray for us. I know that things that people cannot do, God can do them. And I, we are needing your support. We need your spiritual support, prayers. We need your material support. We need financial support. We need any type of support that you people can give us. Even political support, we need it. Because if our African Liberation Party can be able to get in contact with our governments and talk to them concerning this crisis, so that dialogue can take place that will enhance uh, us so much to make them stop this fighting in our country is because there is no dialogue. People are just fighting and no one wants to put down the guns. Uh, the government is insisting that the secessionists the put down their guns and they don't want to put down their guns. They say the government should call them in for dialogue. The government is not calling for dialogue. So I'm just pleading that any way that you people can help us because I feel so bad. I feel so bad. I'm even sick of gastric. You know, when you think too much, you develop gastric pains. When I see the way people are suffering, it touches my heart, touches my heart. I tell you, I don't feel fine. I don't feel happy when I see my people, my fellow women suffering with children running up and down. I see our youth being killed. Our youth, the soldiers are our youth. The secessionists are our youth with guns killing each other. It's very bad. It's terrible. It's really terrible to me. How is Sister Hachi? Is she well? Is she still in the uh, hospital? Yeah, Sister Head is still recuperating and um, waiting for her to get better. Okay. Okay, okay. Yeah. I wish that she should get back in very fast. I say, like oh. always, we thank you for giving us an update on what's going on in Cameroon. And to my panelists, we're going to take a station break, and when we come back, we'd like for y'all to give us your final thoughts for tonight as it relates to our theme, protecting, rejecting, and the use of power. This is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back. I think for me, I will withdraw. I want to speak. Come from Clarendon And if you come from 
from Portland And if you come from Westmoreland You're an African So don't care where you come from As long as you're a black man You're an African No mind your nationality Have got the identity of an African
you, Brother Haki and Brother Anthony, your final thoughts, and how can they contact your organization as well, Brother Anthony? Certainly. Uh, My final thought, thought for the night is that all Africans need to join a political organization that's working to build Pan-Africanism. Let's see. uh, And you can get in contact with the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, by visiting our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Thank you, our political panelists. Thank you, our participants. And, of course, as always, we thank you, our listeners and supporters, for supporting Africa on the Move, which is a community project of the African Awareness Association. We do encourage you that if you love your people and help your people, the best way and the only way you can properly do that is by joining an organization that is fighting for the liberation of your people and humanity. We also come to share with you that it's important for you to understand you need to receive revolutionary information, the kind of information that will allow you to see the problems of our people clearly, objectively, and understand what's really properly need to be done to move our people forward. With information you can thank, with organization you can thank clearly, and once you do this, our people is on the road towards our true liberation. Like always, this program is a weekly program, comes on from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S., and we'd like to sh- you to share this information with your network. You can email us, contact us with any comments or questions that you may have, or email us at africaonamoo2 at gmail. Until next time, we'd just like to encourage you to remember that let's strive to always go forward, Apple. Back with Neville, and we'll leave you now with the sign of Bumper Nation and Mama Africa. We'll see you next week. That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy, Mosaddegh, Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper, all right? That's mm-hmm. his music. Bust a beat for me, right? All right, sure.
Getting ready for Syria First black president The masses were hungry But the same president Just bombed an African country Like... somewhere. Sasha and Malia are huge fans, but uh, boys don't get any ideas. I have two words for you. Predator drones. <laughs> you will never see it coming. You think I'm joking?
Virginia. Thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, Within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King, 
and the Montgomery boycott came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. Thus, if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. 
All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, mobilist, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who once having main gains are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, 
to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly, if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students, then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in the society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values, connected with the masses, always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students to clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. 
We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> Uh, the students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area the 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and as a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when, we look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country, immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know us Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> 
We filled the party of the populists. We did work for the populists. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Nick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people.
First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the fair, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Uh, he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind, even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Right. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. 
today the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate it, the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is of course the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point, then. The final point, then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system, which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> of course. Of course. You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. 
For the African masses everywhere, the clear poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we, who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.